0: This episode of the Investment Interlude contains financial advice. The advice is general and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. You should consider whether this advice is suitable for you and your personal circumstances. When relevant, consult a financial advisor, financial counselor, or legal advice. You're listening to the Investment Interlude, a podcast that talks about money, finances, the stock market, and the economy as a whole. I'm Thomas Patterson, a finance and economics student at the University of Wollongong, and I'm here to keep you up to date on the economy and new tips that I've found on my journey to newfound wealth. Welcome all back to this week's episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did writing it, Uh, mainly due to this one being uh, something that I am incredibly passionate about, investment strategies. We'll combine some of the previously mentioned things in some of the last episodes uh, and hopefully deliver them in a pretty planned out way for this one. Very content heavy. Uh, The info from today's episode comes also from Investopedia uh, for the setting out. And I hope that I can present it in a quite a well, well thought out manner for you guys. Um, So the best things about investing strategies is that they're flexible, right? If you choose one, but it doesn't suit your risk tolerance or schedule or, you know, you can certainly make changes. But be forewarned, doing so can be expensive. Every purchase carries a fee and more importantly, selling assets can create a realized capital gain and they're taxable and therefore expensive. Hopefully that's uh, pretty well taken away. So today we're gonna to look at the four most common uh, investing strategies that are suited by most investors. Uh, and by taking the time to understand characteristics of each, hopefully you'll be in a better position to choose one that's right for you over the long term without needing to incur the expense of changing course or, and whatnot. So first off, take some notes. Before you begin, research your investment strategy you need to gather some other questions you need to ask yourself some key questions and get some basic information about your situation right by the way this again isn't financial advice in any way completely general what's your current financial situation cost of living monthly expenses any debt have uh how much can you afford to invest both initially and an ongoing basis even though you don't need a lot of money to get started, you shouldn't start if you can't afford to do so. I've been there, I've tried that, and then suddenly you pull the money back out of your investment and you've just lost probably you know a bit of cash in brokerage. It's not smart. So if you've got a lot of, a lot of debts or obligations that you have to meet, uh, consider like the impact that investing will have on your situation before you start setting money aside for it. Make sure that you can afford to invest before you actually start putting money away. Please, it's dumb if you don't to reiterate that one. Next, set out your goals. So everyone's got different needs. So you need to determine what yours are. Are you wanting to save for retirement? Are you looking to make a big purchase like a car or a home, much like I am? Or are you saving for your kid's education? Um, Look, this will help you narrow down a strategy. Figure out what your risk tolerance is. Usually this is determined by quite a few key factors, one being your age, another your income. Uh, and how long you have until you retire. The younger you are, me being nearly 20, uh, I can take on more risk than someone in their mid to late 50s. More risk means higher returns for sure, but lower risk means the gains won't be realized as quickly. But keep in mind that high risk investments also mean that there are a greater potential for losses. Finally, just learn the basics. It's a good idea. Rewatch or, and re-listen, I should say, to my previous episodes, and hopefully that'll help out. Um, but you need to have a good understanding of what you're getting into, so you're not just investing blindly. Um, yeah, so read on some key strategies out there, some other things like that, maybe even how to read charts and things. It's probably not a bad idea. The first strategy, and the one that we went into quite well last, um, last episode, when we talked about Intrinsic value. Value investing. So value investors, as we learned from intrinsic value, are bargain shoppers. They seek stock that believe are undervalued and they look for stock with prices that they don't believe that fully reflect the intrinsic value of security. We've said that, so that's a little bit of a recap. Value investing is in part on the idea of some degree that irrationality exists in the market. This irrationality in theory presents opportunities to get a stock at a discounted price and make money from it. It's not necessary for value investors to comb through volumes of financial data to find deals. Thousands of value mutual funds give investors the chance to own a basket of stocks that are thought to be undervalued. Um, For example, the one that Investopedia has listed in their little article was the Russell 1000 value index. For example, it's a popular benchmark for value investors and several mutual funds mimic this index by um, synthetically trying to uh, create return value. As discussed above, investors can change strategies at any time, but in doing so, especially a value investor, can be super costly. Despite this, many investors do give up on the strategy after a few poor performing years Uh, Such in 2014, the Wall Street Journal reporter Jason Zigwig, explained over uh, over the decade ending in December 31st, value funds specializing in large stocks returned an average of 6.7% annually, but the typical investors in those funds earned just 5.5% annually. Why did that happen? Because too many investors decided to pull their money out and run. The lesson here is in order to make value investing work, you've got to play the long game and it has to happen. So if you are uh, but if you are a true value investor, you don't need anyone to convince you that you need to stay in it for the long run because this strategy is designed around the idea that should buy you should be buying businesses not stocks. That means the investor must consider in the big picture, not a temporary knockout performance. People often cite legendary investor Warren Buffett, as many people will know him, uh, and he is cited as the epitome of a value investor. He does his homework sometimes for years before he even acquires anything. When he's ready, he goes all in and definitely commits, uh, definitely commits for the long-term. Consider um, Buffett's words when he made a substantial investment in the airline industry. He explained that airlines had a a bad first century and then he said, and then they got a uh, a bad century out of the way, I hope. This thinking exemplifies how much value investing, how much of the value investing approach choices are based on decades of trends with decades of future performance in mind. So that's just a little bit of an add-on to what we spoke about last year. It is so much that when I said that, you know, this is investing, it is investing. It's like you are putting actual time into this and it's not just like your normal little, little bit of time. It's like decades. Uh, value investing probably is really good if you want to go self-managed super. Um, I may do an episode on superannuation and like sort of considerations that you can make uh, in terms of what you should be looking out for. But definitely superannuation and value investing almost sort of go together like a love child. It's fantastic. But value investing tools. So like for people who don't, have time to perform exhaustive research. Price to earnings ratio, you know, the PE ratio that we spoke about has become the primary tool uh, for quickly identifying undervalue or cheap stocks. This is a single number, and it comes by dividing a stock's uh, share price by its EPS, its earnings per share. A lower price to earnings signifies that you're gonna be paying less per $1 of current earnings. The value investors seek companies with a really low PE, is basically what I'm trying to say there. Um, if using the PE PA, part of me, if using the PE alone is flawed, uh, what an investor should do is try and use try and find the true value of stocks. So, the researcher suggests a good quantitative approach to detecting these distortions, uh, such as combining formula, uh formulaic value with momentum, quality, and profitability measures, can help avoid value traps. So, what are value traps? Well. While you're using the PE, it's a good start. Some experts do warn that this measure alone isn't actually enough to make the strategy work. So financial analysts from a actual research peer review paper determined that quantitative investment strategies based on ratios are not good substitutes for value investing strategies that use a comprehensive approach in, a, in identifying underpriced securities. The reason, according to their work, is that investors are often lured by a low PE based on temporary inflating accounting numbers. And those low figures, in many instances, the result of a falsely high earnings figure, the denominator, when real earnings are reported, not just forecasted, they're often lower. This results in a reversion to the mean. So the PE ratio goes up and the value of the investor is pursued is gone. So, what's the message with value investing? The message is definitely that value investing can work so long as the investor is in it properly for the long term, like committed, and is prepared to apply some serious effort and research to their stock selection. Those who are willing to actually put it in and stick around will gain. One study from Doge and Cox actually determined that the value value strategies nearly always outperform growth strategies, which is kind of a kick in the face to me because I'm a growth investor, more on that in a minute. The study goes on to explain that value strategies, pardon, um, but yeah, these periods, the uh, the study goes on to explain that value strategies have underperformed uh, growth strategies for a ten year period in just three periods of the last ninety years. Those periods were the Great Depression, the tech uh, the tech stock bubble, which was uh, the dot com bubble, I believe, is probably the best way of saying it, uh, and the two thousand and four to fourteen sort of fifteen period as well. Basically. Um, when I can actually read some of the information that's in front of me, which would be, you know, kind of nice and helpful to give it out in a really well thought out manner. Um, it shows that value investing definitely will will work. Um, which sort of leads me as, as you probably heard, growth investing has, uh, been my little forte. Um, so it's our second strategy that I wanted to talk about. So growth investing rather than looking for low cost deals, growth investors like myself want investments that offer strong upside potential when it comes to the future earnings of stocks. I personally believe that future stock price in this day and age with our age group, and I think it is a sign of the age that um, strong earnings is going to provide a stronger stock price. So It could be said that growth investors are often looking for the next big thing. Um, Apple, for example, generally outperforms quite a bit of things. Uh, And growth investing, however, it's not a reckless embrace of uh, speculation or speculative investing. Rather, it actually involves evaluating the stock's current health as well as its potential to grow. So the speculation isn't even just at its past growth rate, but actually speculating and seeing its potential to grow. So a growth investor, like myself, again, uh, consists of the prospects of the industry in which the stock thrives. So for example, you might ask yourself if there's a future for electric vehicles before investing in Tesla, or I wonder if AI will become a fixture of everyday living before investing in a tech company, right? Um, I very much made that exact thing with Tesla because I do think electric cars are going that away. However, I think the battery technology is eventually going to change. I think lithium is going to become more and more expensive. It's going to be a massive thing, uh, but we'll see. Who knows? That's, that's the fun of speculating, I suppose. Um, and I say fun, like you're not gonna lose money, but you can. <laughs> um, but there must be evidence of widespread and robust appetite for the company's services um, or products if it's going to grow. Investors can generally answer this question by looking at a company's recent history simply put a, a growth stock should be growing right it's in the name uh, and this company should have a consistent trend of strong earnings and revenue signifying a capacity to deliver on the growth expectations that's pretty interesting saying that because tesla is generally just in their car manufacturing returning a loss this is covered up a little bit and you know but people still believe at Tesla has the capacity to grow and has the capacity to, uh, that they've got a lot of faith in Elon, I'll be completely honest. Um, bloody hell, every episode this man has brought up. But it's because he seems to be really in touch with uh, g- the growth of the company. Um, and I think he really wants to capitalize on the transparency that he likes to give in terms of um, the company and Tesla specifically, less so on SpaceX. Um, but yeah. Anyway, a drawback to growth investing can be a lack of dividends. If you like dividends, you know, you're probably not gonna see them here. If a company is in growth mode, which growth investing generally is, <laughs> it often needs capital to sustain the expansion that it's going to have. It doesn't leave much or really any cash left for dividend payments. And moreover, with faster earning growth comes higher valuations, which are, for most investors, a higher risk proposition. So it might not be the, the best for everyone does growth investing work as research above indicates value investing trends tend to outperform growth over the long term fine these findings don't mean a growth investor can't profit from the strategy it just means that a growth strategy doesn't usually generate the same level of returns with value investing but according to a study from the new york university stern school of business while growth investing underperforms uh, value investing especially over long periods it is also true that there are sub-periods where growth investing dominates, which, you know, sick. The challenge is, of course is determining when these sub-periods are actually going to occur. So, you know, interestingly determining the periods of when growth strategy is poised to perform um, may mean looking at GDP, so gross domestic product, uh, more on some economics stuff in future episodes. Take the time between 2000 and uh, 2015, for example, when a growth strategy beats a value strategy in seven years, which was 2007, 2009, uh, 2011, 2013, and 2015. During five of these years, the GDP growth rate was below 2%. Meanwhile, a, val- a value strategy won in nine years. Uh, and seven of those years, the GDP was above 2%. Therefore, it stands to reason that a growth strategy may be more successful in during periods of decreasing GDP, much like the COVID recessions that are currently happening because companies are less looking to grow. Which is interesting because if you are a growth investor, the growth stocks and companies that you are investing in are going to still be in growth mode, whereas the value ones are going to continue operating as per usual or on a capital raising or capital conservation methods, where they're going to try and save capital rather than trying to expand in a bleak outlook, as they would say. Some growth investing styles um, warn, or some growth investing uh, professionals do warn, growth at any price is a dangerous approach. Such a drive did give rise to the tech bubble, which vaporized so many portfolios. quote, which was over the past decade, the average in growth stock had returned 159% versus just 89% for value, according to Money Magazine's Investor's Guide in 2018. Growth investing variables. While there are no definitive list of hard metrics to guide a growth strategy, there are a few factors in which an investor should definitely consider. Merrill Lynch uh, did some research, uh, and for example, they found that growth stocks outperform Uh, during periods of falling interest rates. Again, such as now. Especially with such low world interest rates too, I should mention. Um, It's also very important to keep in mind that the first sign of a downturn in the economy, gross stocks are often the first to take a hit, such as uh, when Tesla's stock price did take a bit of a fall. Same thing with Apple, same thing with Microsoft. All of these um, definitely got smacked. Um, They have since recovered in March, but generally they're the biggest to fall, hardest to fall, and first to fall. So they've got it well. Uh, Growth investors um, also need to carefully consider the management prowess of a business's executive team. Um, A huge, 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 huge um, thing to use with that. If you can afford it, Simply Wall Street. Simply Wall Street is a fantastic phone app. I highly recommend downloading it just in regards to the um, actual um, metrics that you can see about a company. It even has like its staffing and how experienced the staff are and things just thinking a little bit on topic there. Anyway, achieving growth is among the most difficult challenges for a firm, like bar Therefore, a stellar leadership team is at very least required. Investors definitely have to watch how the team performs and means by which it will actually achieve that growth. Growth is a little out of, um, growth is a little of, growth is of little value if I can actually talk, it would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Uh, If it's achieved with heavy borrowing. So obviously your debt to uh, profit ratio or your debt to revenue ratios, which you can probably look, um, you need to keep those low because obviously if you're gonna be stuck paying back debt, you're not really growing very much, are you? At the same time, investors should evaluate competition. Uh, A company may enjoy stellar growth, but if its primary product is easily replicated or replaced, Uh, Long term prospects are pretty dim in terms of, um, you know, sort of that long term investing period, five years plus. GoPro, definitely a prime example of this phenomenon. Um, The high flying stock, once upon a time, um, had seen an annual regular revenue decline since 2015. And in months following its debut, um, more than tripled its IPO in shares of $24 to as much as $87, the Wall Street Journal reported back in the day. The stock actually traded well below its IPO price, and much of this demise is attributed to the easy replicated design. After all, GoPro, at its call, is a small camera in a box. Investopedia really doesn't hold back, do they? <clears throat> the rising popularity and quality of smartphone cameras offered a cheap alternative to paying four to $600, which is what essentially a non-functioning piece of equipment. Look. Moreover, the company has been unsuccessful at designing and releasing new products, which is a necessary step to sustaining said growth. Um, something growth investors must consider. Another strategy. Here we go. Momentum investing. <laughs> Momentum investors. I like to call the surfer dudes because they be they are riding that wave, and they are always riding that wave. They believe winners keep winning and losers keep losing which is a pretty bleak outlook if you ask me. Uh, They look to buy stocks, um, definitely experiencing an uptrend, GME, uh, Stonks, as Elon would call it, GameStop is one of these ones um, until it sort of came crashing back to earth at the start of the week. Because they definitely believe that losers continue to drop and may actually choose to short sell those securities, but short selling is an exceedingly risky practice. More on that one later. Momentum investors, um, as just think of them as technical analysts. They, uh, this means that they use a strictly da- data-driven approach to trading and looking for patterns in stock prices to guide their purchasing decisions. In essence, momentum investors act in defiance of the EMH, which is the Efficient Market Hypothesis Theory. This is something that we learn in finance, uh, in intro to finance. Basically, the hypothesis actually, one of the hypotheses anyway, there's three of them the hypothesis states that an asset price is fully reflective on all information that is available to the public. It is difficult to believe that statement and be a momentum investor given that the strategy seeks to capitalize on undervalued and overvalued equities. Um, I can give a full rundown on the different EMHs, but honestly, right now, the efficient market hypothesis of just everything is in, all information is public and that Asset prices are fully reflected on said information. Yeah, we'll roll with that. That's as close as it needs to be. Does momentum investing work? As the cases with so many other investing styles, it's it's complicated. Some case studies and a closer look into it. Rob Arnott, chairman and founder of Research Affiliates researched the question and what he found was no USA mutual, mutual fund with momentum in its name has since, in its inception, outperformed their benchmark net of fees and expenses. It kind of hurts, but bearing in mind too that this is a fund. We're not talking individual investors here either. If you like, go and trade. If you were on the GameStop train on that gravy train, and you rode it all the way to the top and sold, and you came out with your hundred thousand to a million dollars because of how ridiculous it was. Congrats, you know. Um, but again, this is on a mutual fund basis and in the US as well. Interestingly, Arnott's research actually showed that um, simulated portfolios that put a theoretical momentum investing strategy to work actually add remarkable value in most time periods and in most asset classes. However, when used in a real world scenario, the results are poor. Why? Trading costs. It's it's two words that no investor or trader wants to hear. All of that buying and selling just stirs up a lot of brokerage and commission fees. This is becoming less and less um, of a problem due to commission-free trading starting to become such a heavy and capitalized on thing to try and draw in new investors. Robinhood, for example, in the US is one of these ones. Um, Stake in Australia is the other commission-free trading platform that you can use for um, for American stocks Um, also to a lot of the big brokerage like IG, uh, CMC, Interactive Brokers, um, Interactive, I think that's the one. Uh, IBM K, I'm pretty sure is there. Yeah, Interactive Brokers, yeah, that's the one. Um, But yeah, uh, traders definitely who who adhere to our momentum strategy may need to be at the switch and be ready to buy and sell at all times. Uh, Profits build over months, not years with them. This is in contrast to simply just buy and hold strategies that take a very normal set and forget it type of approach. For those who take lunch breaks or simply don't have an interest in watching the market every day, there are momentum style ETFs or exchange traded funds. And these shares give investors access to a basket of stocks deemed to be the characteristics of momentum securities. Look, the appeal of a momentum investing, despite some of its shortcomings, momentum investing actually has its appeal. Consider, for example, that uh, the, MSC, uh, the MSCI World Momentum Index has averaged annual gains of 7.3% over the past two decades. Just by the way, in since 2008, interest rates have remained relatively low, Australian exchange rates uh during the end of the mining boom when we used to be at like a dollar 13 for every u.s dollar that was ridiculous at 7.3 percent if you were in any u.s fund back then you would be laughing to the bank literally laughing to the bank um yeah um, but yeah that's almost 7.3 percent over two decades is almost twice the broader benchmark um, this return probably doesn't actually account for training costs as well, uh, or the time required for said executions, but 7.3%, you really can't argue with it. Recent research also finds that it may be possible to actively trade a momentum strategy without the need for a full-time trading and research. US data from the, new, uh, from the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, between 91 and 2010, and a 2015 study found that simplify, uh, simplified momentum strategies outperformed the benchmark even after accounting for transaction costs moreover a minimum investment of only five thousand dollars and i know i'm saying only it's a lot of money for a lot of young people i get it but it was enough to realize those benefits i mean if you do five thousand dollars for 7.3 percent, you're screaming because that's look if that's a return per annum that's almost 500 dollars um, in a single year that's pretty good for a fund like that's pretty damn good The same research also found that comparing this basic strategy to one or more frequent smaller trades showed up, uh, showed the latter outperformed it, but only to a degree. Sooner or later, the trading costs of rapid fire approach eroded returns, uh, which is almost a basic look at economics of scale. The more you do or the the more you produce, the less you actually benefit from it in a very, very oversimplified way. But yeah. I mean it's something that you can do and the optimal momentum trading frequency ranges from bi-yearly to monthly so it's almost on the time of swing trading to a degree. Uh, If you're day trading and sort of just scalping uh, for cash like that's not the same thing but anyhow. So let's get on to a fairly interesting one right before we go into our fourth and last strategy. Shorting or short selling. As mentioned earlier, aggressive momentum traders may also use short selling as a way to boost their and bolster returns. The technique actually allows for an investor to profit from a drop in an asset price. For example, a short seller believing a security will fall in price, borrows 50 shares totaling, I don't know, 100 bucks. Next, the short seller immediately sells those shares out of the market for $100 and then waits for the asset price to drop when they repurchase those 50 shares, so they can be returned to the lender at, let's say, uh, $25 a share. the short Therefore, the short seller gained $100 on the initial sale and spent $25 to get the shares back for a gain of $75. Sick, right? Look, it sounds pretty good. The problem with this strategy is that there is an unlimited downside risk. And because, at the end of the day, companies can always go broke. Uh, but that would be meaning that there's your limited upside potential, right? Whereas your unlimited downside risk is that company stock prices can theoretically keep growing forever. They won't, but they can theoretically. In normal investing, the downside risk is the total value of your investment. If you invest $100, the most you can lose is $100, right? With short selling though, your maximum possible loss is limitless. In the scenario that I spoke about before, if you borrow 50 shares and sell them for 100 bucks, but perhaps the stock doesn't drop as expected, except it goes up. The 50 shares are now worth 150, then 200, then etc. so on, so on, and so on. Sooner or later, the short seller must repurchase those shares and return them to the lender, because if the share price keeps increasing, that'll be an expensive proposition for anyone. The lesson with momentum trading is that it may be profitable, but, not if it comes with that limitless downside risk that is associated with short selling you can always just avoid it completely too and it is a very possible thing to do and i mean why would you not so let's talk about the final strategy strategy four and i can't say this without saying it in the casually explained voice um the guide to wall street is actually pretty funny dollar cost averaging DCA or dollar cost averaging is the practice of making regular investments in the market over time and is not mutually exclusive to the other methods that are described above. Rather, it's a mean of executing whatever strategy you choose. With DCA, you may choose to put in $300 in investment count each month. This disciplined approach generally becomes particularly powerful when you use automated features that invest for you. Something like raise is a really good good thing to uh, point out. Generally um, it's it's generally easy to commit to a plan when the process requires no oversight from you like seriously The benefit from DCA is that it avoids the painful ill-fated strategy of market timing even seasoned traders and investors can occasionally feel the temptation to buy when they think prices are low only to discover To everyone's disappointment and dismay They have a longer way to go down Um, The old school saying is buy the dip. And um, if you're doing this with DCA, well, you'll be set. But also too, if you've got someone doing it for you, generally they're doing it for you and they're doing it pretty damn well. When investment happens in regular incurrence, the investor captures prices at all levels from high to low. These periodic investments generally effectively lower the average per share cost of the purchases. That's why it's dollar cost averaging. You're averaging out the potential loss that you take by buying at all different price points. Um, Just as time goes on, I should say, not just, it's not like you're gonna buy them for more expensive than the market price. Putting DCA to work means that deciding on three parameters, right? The total sum that you need to invest, the window of time during which the investments will be made and the frequency of which those purchases will be made or acquisitions. Dollar cost averaging is definitely a wise choice for most investors and it keeps you committed to saving while reducing the level of risk and the effects of volatility. I almost see this as a way of hedging in a very, very simplified fashion, but it's not. Uh, But for those in a position to invest a lump sum, DCA might actually not be the best approach for obvious reasons. Um, According to a 2012 study from Vanguard, who is a massive broker, on average, we find that lump sum investments approach has actually outperformed DCA, uh, the approach approximately two thirds of the time, even when the results are adjusted for higher volatility of a stock or bond portfolio versus cash investments or cash equivalents. But the investor, but most investors aren't actually in a position to make a single large investment, especially like us uni students. If there's anyone else what, uh, listening, completely, you know, you'd be feeling that. So therefore, dollar cost averaging is actually pretty damn appropriate for most people. And moreover, too, a DCA approach is actually an effective countermeasure to the contingent, to the cognitive bias inherited to humans. Um, I try and li- limit this bias. Um, whenever I see a stock and I go, that's not bad. Or like with, um, GameStop, for example, set it right that time. Um, I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is good. Everyone's jumping on this. It's just going to keep going up because, you know, stonks only go up. Um, yeah, no, uh, lucky that I didn't jump on that. Cause I didn't see any benefit of having it. Um, other than really short term monetary gain, which uh, by that point brokerages have already started manipulating markets and things. Oh, that's a bit controversial, um, and had stopped allowing trades to be placed for any shorted things to try and squeeze out big hedge funds. Um, yeah, I don't hate the banks Nobody really take that joke the wrong way. Um, it's just, they need to be a little bit transparent. But dollar cost averaging definitely circumvents the common problems by removing human f- um, fertilities from the equation like regular automated investments prevent spontaneous illogical behavior. Generally in economics, we're actually taught this thing. Uh, There's a couple of rules to the economy, right? The main one that I'm gonna touch on is that humans are rational, they make rational decisions. Not always, like no way. I've seen some pretty dumb investment decisions made in my lifetime, myself doing them. And in the same Vanguard study, they actually concluded if the investor is primarily concerned with minimizing downside risk and potential feelings of regret resulting from lump sum investing immediately before a market downturn, for example, then DCA uh, might actually be of use. So let's just say you've identified your strategy after my lovely stuttering and mumbling of talking. You've narrowed down a strategy, it was sweet. Uh, But there's still a few things that you do need to consider and need to do before you make your first deposit into your CDIA account if you're with Com or your investment account in general. First, figure out how much money you're going to need to cover your installments. That includes how much you can deposit at first as well as how much you can continue to invest going forward. Then you'll definitely need to decide the best way for you to invest. Do you want to go with a traditional financial advisor or broker or is a passive worry-free approach more appropriate to you. If you choose the latter, considering signing up with a robo-advisor or just someone that trades on your behalf is sort of what I should be saying. Robo-advisors are sort of just more popular in the US. We have very few of them here in Australia. Um, This will help you out figure out the cost of investing for management fees to commissions that you'll need to pay to your broker or advisor. And another thing in mind is if you can, Make sure that you keep money going to your super and make sure that you choose a really good super account. I will do a video on super pretty soon uh, about some pros, cons, and some uh, like political issues. I is probably the best way of saying it with the um, superannuation system. But it's definitely a great way to start out investing. Like you're already investing when you do already open your superannuation account when you turn 18 or you start working enough. Many companies actually allow you to invest um, part of your paycheck. Like you can add extra contribution um, and tuck it away as a tax deductible um, form of investing. And you probably won't even notice because if you add those extra payments on, you you don't have to do anything. Generally your employer will cover the um, extra ones and put a part of your paycheck in there as an added contribution. Consider also investment vehicles. Remember that it it doesn't help keep your eggs in one basket so try and spread your money around um and when i say investment vehicles i'm obviously talking about diversifying like stocks bonds, mutual funds etfs not like an actual investment car (laughs) um unless you're into that because you know some you know uh the the motor market really isn't my place but you know it it exists and it's definitely (laughs) it's like sneakers you could also do that on like stock x it's like it's literally the exchange for sneakers Um, If you're someone who's into socially, if you're someone who is socially conscious, you may consider actually responsible investing. Um, What does that mean? It means that you try and avoid like fossil fuels and things like that. Um, But yeah, now's the time to figure out what you want in your investment portfolio to be made of and what you want it to look like investing at the end of the day is pretty much like a roller coaster. So try and keep your emotions at bay. It may seem amazing when your investments are actually making money, uh, but when they take a loss, it's definitely difficult to handle. Um, But that's why it's important, definitely, to take a step back, take your emotions out of it, and review your investments with either an advisor or make sure to do a financial health check by yourself if you can. Uh, Definitely on a regular basis. Try to do it like once every three months if you can to make sure they're doing on track. But yeah. So I think that pretty much covers up everything to be completely fair about some different strategies and things. Hopefully we'll have some trading news coming back soon. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for coming this week. And it's definitely been a longer one. This is less of an interlude and more of a sit down, um, which is a little bit against what we would normally do here. Uh, but I hope the longer episodes are actually quite nice. You can sit down and read or listen at the same time or if you, know, if you can multitask, then fantastic. But anyhow, thank you very much for... Uh, coming along and listening uh, and I hope you enjoy the rest of whatever you're doing and hopefully you have a really good week investing thanks very much guys see you later